There are a few logical places to start off a conversation on Scripture. We could start with all of the questions and problems late modern Western people, in particular Portlanders, have with the Bible itself. Have anybody here read it? The whole thing. It's, it's full of weird stuff. You know, why does Ruth sleep at Boaz's feet? And how does Jacob not recognize Leah on his wedding night? That, have you read that one? Or who in the world are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6? It has lots of cringeworthy stuff from polygamy to sexual assault to all sorts of holy war. It's full of the miraculous, which is really hard for late modern secular people to trust. And it's full of teachings that are at odds with both the progressive left and the conservative right. So no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, you're unhappy once in a while. And I have come to realize over the last decade now at Bridgetown Church that we are living in a generation-wide breakdown of trust in the Bible. So many young people see the Bible as more of an obstacle to faith than an aid, whereas my parents' generation could read the story of the Battle of Jericho and say, yes, God is for me, and what's my Jericho? And let me turn this into allegory, which it's not, and march around my Jericho or whatever. We read that and we think, how is that not genocide in the name of God? More and more people are en route to becoming what our friend John Collins called a post-Bible Christian, which in my pastoral experience, for most people is a layover en route to becoming post-Christian. And I get it, not a lot of judgment per se. You know, I'm skeptical by nature. My Myers-Briggs type is, true story, quote, most likely to be an atheist. Not all that helpful when you're a pastor. Um, thank you, God. But my mind is just bent in that direction. So I have a lot of empathy for those of you that are still working out your relationship with the Bible. A number of years ago now, I just about lost my faith in God over the Bible because of how I grew up reading it. And, and it wasn't until you know seminary and Tim Mackey and many others that began to kind of relearn how to reread it from the ground up and fell in love with it all over again. I think I've come to what the French philosopher Ricoeur called the second naivety around the Bible, where I really have come to love this library. But I have a lot of empathy for those of you that are still in process. So we could start there. It would take years, but there are great answers to a lot of that stuff. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And I really have come to trust the Bible. But that would start us off with a heart posture where we are the judge and the jury, and we put the Bible on trial, and we examine the evidence to see if it is guilty or innocence. And while some of you need to go through that process in order to come to trust the Bible, that is just not, if we're, the hard truth is, that's just not the heart posture of an apprentice of Jesus toward the Bible. So another place that's a little bit further down the path toward apprenticeship to Jesus that we could start would be with the Bible itself. What claims does it make about itself? Which is really fun, there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. It makes a lot of claims that are at odds with both the left and the right, so we could just make everybody mad, that would be really fun. But if you're one of the many people in the room who don't already trust the Bible, that's a non-starter because it's circular reasoning. We don't trust the Bible as scripture because it claims to be scripture any more than we trust the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon because they claim, though in a different way, to be a kind of scripture. 
But even for those of us who have come to trust the Bible, we're there, we're all in, it's a part of our life with Jesus, that still has us in a heart posture that I don't think is quite right, where we stand at arm's length from the Bible, we are the subject, it is the object, and we think about it with our mind and we really attempt to control it. But as we will see tonight, control is incompatible with spiritual formation. We can all think of Bible who know the Bible, people who know the Bible really well, who even went through seminary and who are, have good orthodox theology, but somehow have not become loving or joyful or at peace like Jesus of Nazareth. So I propose that we start off our time together from another place, not with all of the problems that people have about the Bible or even with the Bible itself, but with Jesus. After all, Jesus was a rabbi, which is a Hebrew word meaning what? Teacher. And he was a teacher of what? Yeah, the, the scriptures or the Bible of his day. He read the Bible. He taught from the Bible. He um, interpreted the Bible. He took issue with many other people's interpretations of the Bible. His mind and imagination were saturated by the scripture and its story. He had most likely all of it put to memory. His identity itself and his sense of vision of life in the kingdom of God was all based on the scriptures. And Jesus' view of the scriptures was over the top high. He said things like, the scripture cannot be broken. Or in another spot, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, quote from one of the Psalms, or of course, to the devil, he said, it is written, quote from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I mean, the reason that you have a Bible in your lap right now, and that many of us in the room start off every single day by reading said Bible, is not necessarily because we have an odd penchant for ancient literature. All two of you, well done. The rest of us, it's because we love and have come to trust an apprentice under Jesus. And at an intuitive level, and this is of course orthodoxy, but at an intuitive level, we know that Jesus and the Bible come together. I would argue there is no version of legitimate apprenticeship to Jesus that does not have a central place for the Bible and does not read the Bible as scripture. I love this from Andrew Wilson in his little book. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So let's start off with a look at what Jesus has today about has to say about the scriptures. Matthew chapter five, we're teaching through the gospel of Matthew over a decade, no, over four years. Um, and so most of you know that Matthew, more than any of the other books in the New Testament, was designed to be taught in the church. Case in point, Matthew puts his collection of Jesus' most central teachings all in one place in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a flow of thought straight through. Take a look at what Jesus says right near the beginning to frame up the sermon. Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
The law of the prophets was a common first century Jewish way of referring to the Bible of his day. Law, or the Hebrew word there is Torah, was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the books of Moses. And then the prophets was one way of referring to the rest of what we now call the New Testament. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now the word abolish is kata lusomai, and it's used later by Matthew for tearing down a building or an institution. When used of the Bible in the first century, it was a technical term that meant to disobey or to disrespect at a deeper level the Bible itself. In our language, we would use the word deconstruction. Don't think that I've come to deconstruct the Bible. Apparently, Jesus was saying and doing and teaching things that were so radical and subversive and countercultural to the religious time of his era that some people thought he had come to deconstruct the Bible, to just throw the whole thing out and kind of move on. But he says, no, I've not come to abolish them, but to, notice, fulfill them. Now, this is a little twist and surprise to you, in particular if you're a first century Jewish listener. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word abolish, again, it means to obey. So you would expect him to say, I've not come to, um, I'm sorry, to disobey. I've not come to disobey the Bible, but to what? Obey it. And all the good religious conservatives breathe a night's deep sigh of relief. Ah, thank you, Jesus. Don't upset the apple cart, right? That's not what he says. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Now, this word fulfill is plerao in Greek, and it's a word used all, by, all through the Gospel of Matthew for a prophecy from the Old Testament or the scriptures of that time that is coming to pass in and through Jesus. So apparently, Jesus sees the entire story of the Bible of his day, or what we call the Old Testament, as all leading up to him. Then he says this, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear, that's a play on words, from the law until everything is accomplished. This thing is here to stay. Therefore, anyone who sets aside, um, there's a, this is lost in translation, but there's a play on words here as well. The Greek word here is luo. It's from the same root word as that word abolish. So anybody, saying anybody who abolishes, anybody, the word literally means to untie, like the way we untie our shoe at the end of the day, or to loose, or to relax. And when, a, you, know, when you have that in regards to the Bible, it means to kind of just play fast and loose and deconstruct and kind of do what you want and obey and pick and choose kind of thing. If you approach that Bible that way, if you abolish the Bible, anyone who does that and who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, hey, join me, we don't have to really obey all of this, let's just relax a little bit and kind of open it up and accommodate it to our city and our time, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There's another play on words. Whoever sets aside one of the least of these will be called least. But whoever practices, there's the word we love, Whoever practices and teaches these commands, referring to the commands of Scripture, and in particular the commands of Scripture that Jesus is about to teach on in the Sermon on the Mount, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, if you don't set aside or relax or deconstruct the Bible, but instead you take it really seriously, in particular Jesus' teachings on the Bible, what some scholars have come to call the canon within the canon, and if you devote your life to practicing it, getting it from your head into your muscle memory, and teaching other people how to practice it, then you will be called one of the great ones in the kingdom of God. 
You could put it this way. For Jesus, there is a reciprocal relationship between how we approach the Bible and the level of our experience in the kingdom of God. But lest you think that Jesus is just beating up on the Portlanders of his day and age, he goes on in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, or a better translation is even goes beyond or goes deeper than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or like the most stringent religious conservative sect there, you will certainly not even enter, not even step in to the kingdom of heaven, this new thing that God is doing in Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to teach the Bible. 21, you have heard that it was said to the people of long ago, and then there's a quote from Exodus 20, you shall not murder. Skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, and there's another quote from Exodus 20, 31. It has been said, and there's a quote from Deuteronomy, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And he goes on teaching the Bible of his day and calling into question some of the common misinterpretations of the Bible of his day and calling people not just to write interpretation, but to the practice of the heart behind the Bible itself. Now, Please notice that Jesus' way of reading the Bible calls into question other ways of reading the Bible in his day and in our own. Sadly, the Bible has been caught up in the culture wars of America and the tragic polarization between left and right. And at the risk of a stereotype, the left tends to read the Bible as no more than a human document. You kind of hear, you know, it's full of errors and contradictions and old or even dangerous ideas like patriarchy and capital punishment and tribalism. And, you know, who knows how it was all put together and Constantine and all of that. And Dan Brown said something about that in a movie with Tom Hanks, but, which is historical, right? Um, but it records, it records people's experience with God at some level, and it's beautiful literature that really gave shape to Western civilization as we know it. So it's worth a read now and again. This way of reading the Bible often takes it seriously as literature, but not as scripture, and really has a hard time accepting the Bible as a divine and human word, as scripture. And it's often a very understandable reaction against the right way of reading the Bible, what most people just call fundamentalism, what scholars call biblicism. Tim Mackey calls it the golden tablets view, which I really like. It's this idea that you know the golden tablets just kind of dropped out of heaven. Human beings were not really involved in it other than a dictation kind of way. And you know it has zero errors, zero errors, zero contradictions, zero weird history stuff. And it's really clear, it's easy to understand. It's a manual for living kind of thing. And you hear it in a smug cliche, like the Bible says it, I believe it, that that what? All of you from the South would know this one. That settles it, right? Which conveniently leaves out one minor step. The Bible says it. I then have to interpret it, which turns out to be really hard work, and it does not settle it at all. This way of reading the Bible often takes it really seriously as scripture. It's the word of God. It's biblical authority, whatever, but not really as literature and has a hard time often accepting the reality of the human side behind the Bible, which is not a dirty little secret. The Bible is very open and honest about this, but often makes claims for the Bible that the Bible and even Jesus does not make for it. Now, it's wise, it's not wise to plot the left-right polarization of our nation onto the map of Jesus' first century Jewish world. 
But that said, with a fair bit of trepidation, there are parallels between the left's way of reading the Bible and the right's in two first century Jewish sects called the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both of which, if you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with each title. The Sadducees, for those of you that are new to the Bible, were a smaller group of upper-class, well-educated elites in the urban center of Jerusalem. They were the power brokers of the day at an intellectual and an economic level, who along with Rome really set the trajectory for the future of Israel. And they were really like laissez-faire around the scriptures. That they, they would not even consider anything after the Torah, the first five books, as scripture. And even the Torah, they were really open to new interpretations on. They refused to believe in anything, quote, supernatural. Um, they refused to believe in things like resurrection of the dead or angels and demons or even prayer at some level. And they were more than willing to accommodate the Bible to the Greco-Roman vision of the good life. Turn over to Mark chapter 12. And let me just read you one interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees on the Bible. Mark chapter 12. This is a great story. Verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Rabbi, they said, Moses wrote for us, meaning it's written in, you know, the Torah, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that sounds really bizarre to us. This is actually, it's a long story, but a beautiful law from the Torah that was an act of social justice for women in a way in a pre-welfare era of caring for women after the death of a husband. It's actually very beautiful. But there's issues with it, 20. Now, there were seven brothers, and next comes the mother of all hypothetical situations. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. You think by about brother number four, you would, you would figure out something's not right with this woman. God bless her. But last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, this is kind of funny, but notice the contempt and the disdain and the arrogance in their heart posture toward Jesus and toward the Bible. This is not just an attack on the doctrine of the resurrection, but on the Bible itself. And just listen to Jesus' reply, 24. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, the angels that you don't believe in. That's a subtle little dig. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, meaning here's where it is in the Torah, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is Jesus' loving but straight up and honest word to the Sadducees, who again have a lot in parallel with the progressives of our day. You are badly mistaken. You are in error because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know what they actually say and how they all fit together and how they actually work and how we actually read them. And as a result, you are missing out on the power of God, the activity of God in and through your life. So there's that. But then there was another group, as I said, called the Pharisees that most of us are a little bit more familiar with. Turn over to John chapter 5. The Pharisees were a 
populist movement up in the Galilee to the north, which was far more rural and small town and the more conservative part of the nation, kind of the heartland. They were all about the Bible. They read it and they made their kids read it and they made their kids put most of it to memory by fifth grade. They would spend hours on it every single Sabbath at the synagogue and all through the week, get up early in the morning to study it. They were devoted to it. But over time, they added to the Bible all sorts of what Jesus in multiple places called human traditions that were later codified in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are still in use today all through Judaism. Take a look here in John chapter 5. I read this a few days ago, and I thought it was fascinating. Jesus' word to the Pharisees, verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently. Now you think you're about to get a high five from Jesus, right? Yes, I study the scriptures diligently. But notice for Jesus, the posture was all off because you think that in them, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is, you know, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you know the joke of Father, Son, and Holy Bible, right? And how often the Bible takes the place of the Spirit of God. Or some people call this bibliolatry, which people literally idolize the Bible. It's a very rare problem in our city and in our church. Most people don't have too high of a view of the Bible at Bridgetown Church or in Portland. It's the opposite, too low of a view of the Bible. But this is a legitimate issue. This is the kind of church culture that I grew up in and was in for a number of years. Jesus goes on to say, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You love the Bible, but you're actually not loving people. Know anybody like that? I have not come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. I notice how loving Jesus is. Your accuser is Moses, or that's code for the Bible itself, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, again, that's code for if you believed the Torah, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And Jesus goes on. This is Jesus' word to the Pharisees, loving but straight up. The Pharisees, again, have a lot in parallel with the conservatives of our day. You study the scriptures diligently, which is great, but for all the wrong reasons. You have lost sight of the fact that the Bible is a means to an end, and the end is to become a loving person full of life with Jesus in the kingdom. So there's that. Now, we could stop right here. Done. We could just say there are two basic ways of reading the Bible in Jesus' day, which have parallels in our time in the left and the right. Jesus took issue with both. He wasn't really a progressive or a conservative. So we read the Bible in this kind of option C way as both scripture and literature, as both divine and human. So this week, everybody listen to the Bible Project, think what it thinks, and read your Bible. Done. Great. Fantastic. Enjoy the snow. But we're still at the level of technique. We're still just thinking about the Bible in our mind. And that's great, I'm, that's not a slam, I'm all for that. But we're not yet dealing with the inner dynamics of our heart posture toward the Bible, and more importantly, toward Jesus himself. We're still not working out the role that the Bible plays in our apprenticeship to Jesus, or if you prefer, our spiritual formation. After all, that is what the Bible is actually for. One last scripture, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter three. 
2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents at the beginning. Um, This is a letter written by Paul to a young protege by the name of Timothy. Paul was a Jewish rabbi himself before an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, which made him reread the entire Bible in light of the reality of Jesus himself. And uh, he eventually became an apprentice of Jesus and in time, a writer of the New Testament. Listen to what he says to Timothy about scripture. 2 Timothy chapter three, let's pick it up in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, what a rich heritage that some of you in the room have as well, which are able to make you wise. The word wise in the New Testament means is a combination of intelligence and goodness. It's able to make you skillful and smart and wise and good at living for salvation, for the healing of your soul and reunion in relationship with God himself. Through faith in or trust in Christ Jesus. All scripture, here's an iconic line, is God-breathed. The Greek word here is theopneustos, and some of your Bibles have the translation of inspired. That's a great translation, but it literally means breathed out by God. It's a divine and human word. It's from the Spirit, but through, in this case, Paul. And it is useful for what? Here's a blatant statement of what the Bible is for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Four things in Paul's mind. One, teaching, to reveal to us the whole new possibility of life in the kingdom of wholeness in Christ. Two, rebuking, to also reveal to us all the ways that we are currently living that are out of alignment with that wholeness in Christ. Three, correcting, the word in Greek means to bring back into alignment, to bring us back into alignment with wholeness in Christ. And four, training. The Greek word here was a well-known word in Jesus' day, or in Paul's day, padia, and it was used for the overall process of growth in a Greco-Roman child from birth and infancy through childhood to maturity via the beautiful combination of discipline and education and learning and experience and structure and wisdom and exercise and formation from a parent or a tutor. Something about the regular reading of scripture has this effect, the effect of a a mother or a father to nurture and grow our soul into expansion and wholeness in Christ. But even that is to an end, 17, so that the servant of God, and notice in Paul's mind, the reader of scripture is not just the student or the professor or the scholar or the critic, but is the servant of God. God, here I am may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The NIV here is not bad, but the translation masks the Greek a little bit with that adverb thoroughly. The ESV is a little bit clearer, so that the servant of God, quote, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word complete is artios in Greek, and it has this idea of the ideal example of something. One lexicon I read said, something that is perfectly suited to its nature. 
One Greek scholar used the analogy of when you come to a fruit bowl and you pick out the best apple in the bowl and you hold it up, and it's not like a Trader Joe's apple. I'm sorry, I love Trader Joe's, but the apple, no good. It's like a New Seasons $8 rich person promised land apple, <laughs> right? And you hold it up and you say that, that is the ideal example of all that an apple has the potential to one day become, right? Some of us are like, I'm the Trader Joe's apple, not the New Seasons apple. That's the end. That's the telos of reading Scripture. It is for God through Scripture to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and, and nurture us, to grow us up in the expansion of our soul until we become the best version, not just of ourselves, but the best version of all that a human being has the potential to become through wholeness in Christ. Put another way, we read the Bible as apprentices of Jesus to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he would do if he were us. But to read the Bible and have this happen in your soul or in mine, spiritual formation, it requires more than just the right technique. Don't read it like a progressive or a conservative, listen to this, read everything by N.T. Wright, whatever. It requires more than that, not less, but more. It requires that we read it with the right posture of the heart. Robert Mulholland, in his book, Shaped by the Word, writes about a shift that most of us in the West, at least, need to go through in order for our reading of the Bible to result in our spiritual formation, that he uses the language of from informational to formational. Ours, as we all know, has been called the information age. Information has become a form of power. Whoever has the best information about God, about money, about diet and exercise, about politics, about whatever, is in the best position to control their life and get the outcome they want. On top of that, our Western educational system, as well as the digital age, both train us to read for information, not for formation. When we come to a textbook or a self-help book or a work of journalism or a blog or an Instagram post, our goal is not to let it form us. Our goal is just to get what we need as fast as possible in order to have more control over our life. But this is literally the exact opposite of one of the core goals of apprenticeship to Jesus, which is learning to give up our control or really the illusion of control, to give it over to Jesus, or another way to say that is to come to trust in him. Well, Holland just makes the point that the goal of informational reading is to cover as much ground as fast as possible just to get the data that we need. Whereas formational reading is about quality, not quantity. We slow down and we sit in the text and we wait for God in that posture and it's all about life with Jesus. Informational reading is linear, like just, okay, what's the next thing and how do I make sense of all of this? Formational reading is all about depth and mystery and an open heart. The goal of informational reading is to master the text, to get our head around it, to bring it under our control and use it for our purposes. Whereas the goal of formational reading is to be mastered by the text, or when it comes to the Bible, to be mastered by God through the text, to come under its control and to be used, in this case, for God's purposes. And informational reading is not bad. Don't misread me. I do it every single day as a part of my job, and there's a time and a place for it, even, I would argue, with the Bible. But to read the Bible not just for information, but for formation, to become our toast, to become complete human beings, the best example of all that we have the potential to grow and mature into. For most of us in the room, this will require a deep shift in the inner dynamics of our being. 
One that, if your story is anything like mine, we resist in our spirit. I love this from Robert Mulholland. The very thought of being conformed, and in context, that's a quote from Paul's line in Romans 12 um, about being conformed to the image of Christ, the renewal of the mind, and it's the implications of that text for scripture. The very thought of being conformed, which clearly implies that we are to be grasped, controlled, and shaped by someone other than ourselves, confronts our deeply ingrained sense of being. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Information gatherers are structurally closed to being addressed by God. We have extreme difficulty in abiding, in waiting patiently, trustingly, perseveringly, to be shaped by God according to God's agenda. Genuine spiritual formation, being conformed, reverses our role from being the subject who controls the objects of the world, in this case, the Bible, to being the object of the loving purposes of God, who seeks to, quote, control us for our perfect wholeness. It reverses our habitual expectations for gratification to a posture of patient, open-ended yieldedness. Love that language. Genuine spiritual formation brings about a fundamental shift from being our own production to being God's creation. The great challenge of the spiritual life is learning to give up the illusion of control which is another way of saying learning to trust in Jesus, or in more traditional language, to have faith. And reading the Bible forces us to confront all the ways that we have been attempting to control our life, the circumstances and people of our life, God himself, prayer, theology, morality, our lifestyle, our money, all of it. And as long as we read the Bible this way, from this posture, we will remain trapped in the self-perpetuating prison of egocentric control that is locked from the inside. The primary thing that I have been learning over the last year or two in my own spiritual journey with Jesus is that as long as I am trapped in the prison of my egocentric control or need for control, I'm not free to become the person of love and joy and peace that I ache to become and that Jesus is calling me into. And as most of you know, with any experience of Jesus, that when Jesus is doing a deep work in your soul, most of the time you just feel confused. I don't know about you, but I'm not sitting around being like, Jesus is doing awesome stuff in me. I'm just more like, what? That's like the whole posture of my heart, you know? Like ellipsis, what? I just don't get it, right? Hindsight is 2020, kinda, sorta, but in the, in the meantime, often it just feels like, God, what are you doing? And, and so forgive me, I know that I still don't have the clarity of language yet to describe this phenomenon, but there is something about coming to the end of your vain attempts to control your life, to control God, to control even your theology and coming to a posture of inner yieldedness to God that I, I'm more and more am learning is the basis of all freedom, all healing, 
all maturity and all love and joy and peace. I think this is what Jesus is getting at with his invitation to take up the cross and deny yourself. Um, I've never died before, and so I'm not an expert on the subject, not yet, I will be. Um, but, I, but I'm guessing that at least on an emotional level, dying feels more like something being done to you than you doing something. I'm guessing it feels more like willingness than willfulness. It feels more like letting go than like grasping. And I wonder if this is what it means to deny yourself. I used to read that as like a white knuckle, flex all the muscles you don't have, Comer, kind of like, deny yourself. <laughs> and, and that just doesn't work very well. In the moment of temptation, in the moment of anger, in the moment of decision, in the moment of whatever, oh, do the right thing, deny yourself. And more and more I'm learning, no, it's not this, it's this. Ha, ha, okay, I yield, have your way. In the evangelical tradition that I came up in, we called this surrender. People asked each other, is Jesus Lord of your life? What a beautiful way to ask if you have come into the kingdom of God, which if you think about it, means another way to translate the kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. But all of us, no matter what your personality is or your family of origin or whatever, at some level, all of us resist the move of the Spirit in this arena. In the language of my little niece, we say, you're not the boss of me, right? <laughs> Which is just a three-year-old's honesty about what we all feel, right? You're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. It's that innate human egocentricity and control that is at the heart of our predicament and from which we need to be saved as our brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition love to highlight, quote, by grace through faith, which in our theological paradigm, we interpret that to mean by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit through fidelity and allegiance to Jesus. But even then, still, it is a work of God so that, quote, no one may boast. But this giving up of control and this realization that, we're not in control of our spiritual formation, that we can't save ourselves, that formation or apprenticeship to Jesus is not a self-improvement project for Jesus, that we're locked in from the inside and we need Jesus to set us free. And, and the beginning step is to deny ourselves, to open and to yield. This just cuts across the grain of our soul and our society. So our practice for the week is all up ahead at practicingtheway.org slash scripture. The plan for week one is very simple. It's just for you to have a conversation with your community about the current status of your relationship to the Bible with no judgment, and it's not a time to like vent necessarily, but no judgment, honest conversation, where are you at? Because we know that in some way your relationship with the Bible is at least tied up with your relationship with Jesus. For those of you who are not yet in a community, this would be a great week just to get coffee or dinner with a friend or brother or family member who is a follower of Jesus and have an ominous conversation about this. And then, if it's not a part of your regular routine, I mean, ideally every day, and, but if you're not anywhere close, then okay, a few times a week, start where you're at, not where you feel you should be. No shame, no guilt, no obligation. But the practice, if you want to join us, everything we do is invitational, is just to start reading the scripture. We would encourage 
encourage you on a daily basis. For most of us, the best time is in the morning to just come to quiet. Again, not informational reading, not cool, read through the Bible in a year, great, got my chapter down, great, on my day. But to just come before God, come to quiet, open to listen, read, and yield. And uh, the plan for our practice over the next few weeks is to experiment with the four main methods of reading the Bible. We start that next week. You don't need to worry about it now. For this week, I would really encourage you to focus less on technique, read a lot of the Bible, read a little of the Bible, read Lectio Divina, study, listen to it, whatever you want. Focus less on that and more just on the posture of your heart, of reading it from this place of, God, I have all sorts of questions and I don't get all of it and sometimes this is amazing and other times it's boring and sometimes I feel you and sometimes I don't. And, but God, I'm just here either way to just say, here I am. The ancients, as we end, called this way of reading spiritual reading and they saw it as a form of prayer, a form of silent surrender to God and listening to his voice through scripture, which really is the heart of all prayer and all Christian spirituality. Soren Kierkegaard defined it as a silent surrendering of everything to God. Reading scripture this way as a silent surrendering of everything to God from this posture of inner yieldedness, again, it takes us right to the bleeding edge of our life and our spiritual formation with Jesus right to the very places in our life and our mind and our worldview and our spirit and our sexuality and our identity and our relationships and our commitments and our you fill in the blank where we are most at odds with Jesus and where the loving invitation of Jesus is to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to open, to let go, to yield in trust in the goodness and love and wisdom of Jesus and the writers of the Bible. But this, of course, is a threat to our ego, to our humanity, to our need for control, our felt need for control, to our self-enthronement in our own mini-kingdom rather than our life in the kingdom. God forbid that Jesus should have to say to any one of us what he said to a mixed group of Sadducees and Pharisees in John chapter eight, quote, you have no room for my word. You just don't have room. You don't have place in your mind, in your life, in your worldview, in your ethics. You don't have room for my word. And I don't imagine Jesus yelling that. I imagine him saying it with a deep groan and love. You have no room for my word. The daily act of reading scripture is a chance to make room for Jesus and his word to welcome his voice, his truth, his love, his correction into our spirit, rather than to come at the Bible and question it, and there's a place for that, but to let it question us, rather than to interrogate it or doubt it, to let it interrogate and doubt us and love us and transform us and God work through it for the healing of our soul and our journey to union with God. But this yielding, this openness, this surrender is less that of a slave to a master, though there is a place for that metaphor. But I think it is more of that of a bride to a bridegroom, of loving intimacy in the wedding chamber. The reason that we can trust Jesus enough to yield our life to him is because he first surrendered himself 
to God the Father on the night before the cross. I think of his iconic line, not my will but yours be done. The ultimate expression of yieldedness, of surrender, of giving up egocentric control. Or what he said on the cross itself, into your hands I commit your spirit, my spirit, which was itself a quote from the Bible, from the book of Psalms. And then on the cross itself, to us, literally, Jesus was there, open, naked, vulnerable. Here I am, I open to you. I literally give you my life and put my life into your hands to do as you will. I yield to you. It is written in the New Testament by the writer John, we love him because he first loved us. That's the order, beautiful. It could just as well be said, we give up our egoistic control and we open to God and we welcome his word and we yield in that deep inner place in our being because he first did that for us. He first surrendered himself to us in love.